You got a problem, you don't know what to do. Your dreams are strange, and you're seeing things too. The world is full of mystery. Life's more than you can see. You can ask pomegranate. You can ask pomegranate. Jesus. Hello. Today's podcast is an interview I did last year with um, a woman named Angela Sanders. And Angela is a murder mystery writer. She sells her books at Barnes and Nobles and Fred Myers and such places. And she is writing a series of books about a woman who realizes she's a witch and then um, doesn't know how to deal with that and then tries to figure it out and like makes mistakes and someone dies because it's a murder mystery and then everything gets weird and then she tries to quit and that can, makes it worse and does it sound familiar to you at all mystics <laughs> that 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 pro- path, process so that's coming right up and um she's a delightful lovely woman and her name is angela sanders and I'll have her right away. And also just here to remind you that um, I have a Patreon page and I am not teaching anywhere but on my Patreon page anymore. Once a month, I produce a beautiful class. Um, Currently, I'm producing classes about divine ones, deities, gods, goddesses, queer gods. And in that class, um, they're turning out to, they're starting to give me an hour long class where you will meet a God. I'll describe the God to you. And then, uh, we'll use that mythology to understand the world by then going into a trance and getting a personal relationship with that idea or being. And then I'll give you a little homework so that you can make that connection and see if that you and that deity are going to jibe and begin to work together. And it's so nice to have gods and goddesses in your life because they're bigger than you and they can provide very specific things. If you go to patreon.com backslash ask pomegranate for $3 to, I think my top end of my scale is like 20 something for $3 a month, as low as you can go. And you can, you can slide anywhere in there. You can go 10, you know, you don't have to stick with the numbers that are up there. You can have this hour long class from me that would normally cost you much more. But I just want people, I I love this work and I want to get it out there. And you can go, you can tell your friends to go. And um, also there's a special little place there where if you sign up for it, it's $35 a month. And what you get for that is one, um, it'll cost, you know, to get a tarot card reading. Actually, it's impossible to get a tarot card reading for me anyway, except for through Patreon anymore. So uh, for about the same uh, cost that it would cost you to get a tarot card reading from me, you can get a tarot card reading and you can get the classes and you can be a major supporter of me for $35 a month to make my life really work. Um, and I'll, um, about an, a year or 10 months after you sign up, I'll call you up and I'll go, let's do the reading. And then I'll give you a two hour tarot card reading over this Zoom machine and um, we'll hang out and we'll do a reading and you'll get the classes. So there's limited spots there. If you want to get one of those spots, go to patreon.com backslash ask 
pomegranate. Okay, here comes Angela. She's fantastic. Five two zero two 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 ninety nine twenty two ninety nine twenty two. You can ask pomegranate. You can ask pomegranate. She's a priestess. Hello, Angela M. Sanders. Hi, Mom. I want to say your full name, your full name, because I want people to know. Um, you're my guest today. This is my guest, Angela M. Sanders, uh, and she's joining us today because not because she's a psychic and going to tell us about that, and not because she is a famous priestess or other interesting kind of person in that way, but because Angela is an author. Hi, Angela. <laughs> Hi. Thank and you for having me on. I'm so, thank you for taking the time out to do this. You know, it's it's all fun for all of us to volunteer our time to talk to each other. <laughs> but it's always interesting to talk, right? So Angela, yeah. Angie uh, has written many, many mysteries. Um, and I was interested in interviewing you today because uh, a lot of your mysteries involve a little psychic information and a little psychic intrigue. But recently, your two, mo your two most, going to be three most current mm -hmm. writings are mm -hmm. um, Cozy Mysteries, which I'll explain to us, uh, about witches, which I thought, how fascinating. And when upon reading them and finding them very accurate for um, actual witchcraft and the way magic actually works, which we'll get into. So um, one of them is called Bait and Witch. I'm sure, I'm sure you have heard the video, people. Bait <laughs> and Witch by M Angela M. Sanders. And then another one in that series is Seven Year Witch. And so that's what we're going to mm -hmm. talk about today. We might also talk about your, your uh, other mysteries. I have another one of those. What's this one called? The Love and Murders. Ooh, and that's a, yeah. a vintage. It's, it's a vintage clothing mysteries. Yeah, oh there's six God. of those out. Do you also have perfume mysteries? Well, that one, The Love and Murders, the latest one, Secret of the Blue Lily, involves a perfume shop in Paris. That's where the perfume comes in. Oh, and also you're, <laughs> you write about perfume, too. Um, and I, yeah. So anyway, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, um, as an author, it seems like you have veered towards mysteries. Uh-huh. As well as perfume, yeah. right? Right. So, right. And mystery, you know, I guess, well, there was a time early. So before I started writing fiction, I wrote magazine articles, which I loved, especially I loved writing profiles. And I thought there was no reason that I would ever write fiction. And then I got this idea for a mystery novel. But then I thought, I don't want to write a mystery novel because I am too good for that. I, I of course, would be writing hardcore literary sorts of things. 
And then, you know, but what do I read? I read mysteries and a lot of other stuff, but a lot of mysteries. And so I was talking to a friend and I said, you know, I kind of want to write some fiction, but I'm torn. Should I write like something serious and important, which probably won't make very much money? Or should I write something more popular and fun that'll probably sell better? And the friend looked at me and he said, it really that's a choice. And um, then, of course, I got over myself. I was like, who do I think I am? What? Right. You know, writing some sort of serious literary thing that I don't even really like reading that much. So I started writing mysteries. And it just mystery for me is a good shape to really write about people and write about places and write about community. And then, you know, somebody gets murdered. But that gives you that gives you the shape for the story. Uh, and then does someone die? <laughs> <laughs> At least one. <laughs> At least one person dies. Um, <laughs> so um, who's your favorite? Can I ask you who your favorite uh, mystery author is, if you have a favorite? I I really like the golden age mystery writers. So like between the 1920s and the early 1950s. And some of my, one of my favorite authors, in fact, right behind me, I'll see if I can grab one of the types is a vintage guy, the Delano Ames. And his books are kind of hard to get a hold of right now, but he's funny and smart. And um, so I really, I always look for his books. And I'm looking behind me. What, do, what else do I have here? Oh, another author I really like is a woman. So I always look for women authors too from the golden era, Helen McCloy. And she did a whole variety of standalone, mostly standalone mysteries. She has some with uh, uh, detective Dr. Basil Willing, the psychiatrist. And so those those are probably my two favorite right now. Um, and then like I sort of have been on a Ruth Ware kick. She's very plot heavy as far as contemporary writer. She's really plot heavy, but super suspenseful. And then, but you, you don't really get the, to know the characters and love them quite as much. Those are the ones that come off the top of my head. It's interesting because as I read um, Bait and Witch, clever name, by the way. Um, as I read that, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm only halfway through, but I'm like, okay, so I've already gotten to know this woman. I got a sense of her. Um, I have gotten introduced to Lyndon, the groundskeeper. I kind of understand them. I know about her mother and her mother, mother's like, and her mother's not even, her mother's not thousands of miles away. Her grandmother, who's dead, her, even her sister I know about. Um, plus about, about a sundry uh, three or four different characters in the town. I've got a sense and I can almost smell that library she's in, in the small oh, yeah, in Oregon. Uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> but she's not from Oregon and I've got like kind of like it's all it's all fully realized even in the first book you really feel like it and you can almost I know what a I know what a damp town on the coast smells like and I know what a, what a library on that damp town might smell like well, I grew up, I grew up in the country, you know, and I wanted to write about a little rural town because 
for one thing, that's sort of the cozy mysteries usually have some little town so that you can get to know people. I mean, just like Murder, She Wrote, the sort of Cabot Cove thing, you know, so if there's somebody new to town, there's a good chance they're going to end up dead. <laughs> but so I went, I mean, in writing the series, I had two big things to work out. One was the community and the places she was. And there it's like, I could do whatever I wanted. So since I was going to create a library, I want, why not put it in a big old Victorian mansion? So I did, you know, it's like, I could do that. And the other thing I had to figure out though, was the magic. I mean, she's a witch. So what does that mean? Does that mean that she can wave her wand and, you know, people freeze or turn into cats or something like that. And I didn't want to write anything that was too goofy. It's like, I didn't want to get too, because I have read some cozy. So one of the things I did when you, um, people who are authors will know about this, but so to do this series, I had to write a proposal since I had written some books before I didn't have to write the whole first book, Bait and Witch. Instead, I wrote like the first three chapters and then I um, wrote a proposal saying, Hey, you want to buy three of these books? And then the editor bit on it. And that's, so I was, I had a contract to write three of these books. And so I read a whole bunch of witch cozies and a lot of them just weren't very inspiring to me. The magic was either, either it was like straight, what I think of a straight Wicca, but you could correct me on that. Where it's just like each person had their own gift and they followed all these things on the witch calendar and they did, but it just wasn't very inspiring. I felt like, well, you know, fine. You can just read a lot about Wicca and then read a mystery and you have sort of the whole idea. But I liked the idea of sort of going beyond that. It's like, what is the source of her magic? And how does she discover it? Instead of saying, I'm going to read this book of rules and I'm going to get to know a bunch of witches. And then I I do all these things I'm supposed to do where she suddenly discovers that she has this weird ability to do things. And then she has to figure out how to format that and how to work with that. And then I was thinking, well, okay, so she's going to have this power this sort of weird, what is it going to be? Well, she's a librarian. Why not books? And I saw this quote, I was in another read-through bookstore, this used bookstore in Mississippi. Now it's closed down though, sadly. And they had a staircase and on one of the treads was written uh, this quote by Alice, Alice Hoffman. And it said, books are the only real magic. And when I saw that, I thought, ding, that's going to be her magic is that she loves books. And when you write a book, there's so much of you that goes into a book. And then when you read a book, so much of you goes in and reflects the book. That That's where her energy can come from. And then I just invented the rest. And I've been sort of living in fear that a bunch of witches are going to show outside of my house and go, you mess this up so bad. <laughs> this is wrong. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm here to tell you, you did not mess it up at all. Um, in fact, one of the mistakes people make when writing about witchcraft, you don't understand it. And Angie, you kind of understand it a little bit. Well, because I have, you know, in talking to you and some other people, just, you know, maybe a little bit of understanding. I'm sure I've gone wrong in lots of areas, but I feel like I understand maybe the heart of it. So far not. Uh, I'll let you know. But so far it's pretty good because a lot of what's happening there's I don't know if you know, you probably don't know this, but oh, maybe you do because writing these books. But there's this thing called the witch boom currently. I don't and know. It's when uh, witch, witchcraft has gotten um, zombified. It's been turned into something really popular in popular culture. 
And so a lot of people are really into it and want to do it. And uh-huh. so it's huge and it's, it's big. And, you know, in my day, when I, in my day, when I was young, you know, I used to do things. And if I advertised that I was doing a ritual or something, I would be guaranteed to meet people who would protest me in the street after the thing, as we came out, like this is guaranteed that uh-huh. there was a violent reaction to it where uh-huh. you would get attacked and cursed and, you know, all kinds of things. You'd have to kind of go through a crowd to leave your ceremony, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. but that's no more. Now there's a witch boom. So a lot of what's happened with that witch boom in media is that it's been portrayed as this omni powerful. It's very dignified too. It's like, I wave my hand and then sparks fly off my hand and then a thing happens. And, you know, that's kind of true. It's a little true if you get good, but it's actually, it's, we call it the subtle art. Uh You describe it as actually subtle. What you experience in your body and what you experience around you is not subtle, but what happens and the way it shows itself takes sometimes a little time. And it's more your perceptions that are not subtle, but in reality. So there's this scene for in your book where you, so there's a scene, for instance, in your book where you, um, there's a fire and the whole place gets burned up and, and all the books go on fire. And then, and then shortly after she realizes, no, that was, that didn't happen. So now I'm confused. Well, that's exactly what happens in the craft. When you're working magic, it feels like something really intense and powerful is happening and the transformation happens. But then when you look, come into the mundane reality, as I call it, you go, okay, I know this changed something, but I don't know what, but it wasn't what I thought. And that's a subtle way of, that's a way of describing the intensity that you feel when you're doing it and the subtle changes that happen in reality. And I think that is really hard to write about. And to understand, and you have that. Well, thank you. You know, there were two the, some two things sparked my mind from what you said. One was that I made her grandmother. So it it's not really a spoiler alert, but so she discovers her magic when she she isn't. There's no one around who knows what it is to be a witch in her world. And so she her mentor is her dead grandmother. At the very end of book one, she ends up with a chest of letters that her grandmother wrote and sealed to her, and each one has a different lesson in it. And no one's been able to open the chest until it comes to her. But so her grandmother, I have, I only refer to it a few times, but if you pay attention, you can see their grandmother is a Christian, but she's also a powerful witch. And so I thought it was sort of interesting to mix those things up. And then the other thing, let's see, there were two points. There are two points. I know there were two points. What was the other point? Um, what you said um, was about, oh, she, so she questions too. It's like, well, if I'm a witch, Maybe I can move stuff with my mind. And so she tries all this stuff and she can't do it because it's not like you're, she's not, you know, a Harry Potter witch or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, uh, you're actually writing about real witch, witchcraft, like what it's actually like. And um, being a witch is sort of a thing that you get, there is a lineage to it. Like my mother would never say she was a witch, never, ever, ever. But at the end of her life, she revealed to me that her Catholicism was just a cover story. <laughs> and, I, and for her spirituality, which she did not, she was like, this is good. It's the one I was raised in. She said that with an Irish accent, but I won't do it. And, um, and she, but she, um, 
I thought I used her powers all the time, mostly for gambling at the end of life. She used it for gambling. Never left a casino without more money than she went in with. You tell me what that's about. Right. <laughs> so, which you can do if that's your full focus, like it was hers. Um, but you, you do have it linearly, but anybody can be one as long as you're willing to train yourself or get trained by someone else, either one. And you have to learn. And so it sounds like she gets trained by her grandmother. She, right. She does it. Right. She does. And I had, uh, so the third book, which is called witch and famous, is not going to be out for a year, but I did her, her grandmother has these letters they are sealed. They're all in a big chest. And then she reaches in and just feels around. And then the lesson she needs comes to her and she opens it. So I put in each book, except not in book one, because it doesn't work. So, but for book two and book three, and I want to continue it if the series is renewed, which I think it will be, because it is currently number 11 best selling mass market paperback at Barnes and Noble. She's yay. Candy, good then, for you. That's great. Man. I know. I don't know how that happened. It doesn't, Barnes and Noble, I guess, doesn't sell the books it used to, but still, I'm happy about that. Um, but I want to put some sort of a lesson, something that she's learning about in each book. But then I'm just sort of making this up as I go too. And I'm I'm working off the plot. Like in book two, it has to do with curses and then land spirits come up related to that as um, in talking to you about that. Um, Pomegranate, by the way, was a little bit of a consulting witch for me. Thank you. And then book three is about love magic. So I have a letter that her grandmother wrote her about that. And then book four, which I haven't written yet, I'm thinking about doing something about knowing what is your business to get involved in and what is not. That Andy, seems like a witch thing. Andy, that is the number one lesson that I teach when I, when I, when I was teaching is the number one lesson. The first thing you ask yourself, is this my business? Oh, because she gets involved in people's business because she's solving murders. Yeah. Oh, so but then good. she might, and she also, as a librarian, makes book suggestions, and she just happens to know what the person really wants to read, whether they know it or not. But I yeah. figured it's your job, so that's okay. That's her business. Yeah. But yeah, okay, so that's interesting. Yeah, yes, I, it, it, I, we should have another consult about it. Okay, I would love um, it. <laughs> because that's the number one thing I teach people is when you're getting psychic information, you have to treat it like, once you get open up your psychic abilities, you know, don't close it down. It's painful, but you can, you can't really filter out, but what you can do is allow psychic information to come pass through you and not be your business. Like kind of like billboards on a road uh -huh. when you're driving. You're like, that's not important. That's not important. I'd like a Starbucks. That one's important. Yeah. <laughs> that is my business. And you follow that sign because you want a coffee. But, um, so that's, you really have to know what is and isn't your business. And you have to kind of get halfway through, ask again, get three quarters of the way through, ask again, is this my business? Because uh -huh. we're naturally empathic and we want to solve the problems of the world, but uh -huh. we, can't, we can't solve the problems of the world. Uh-huh, right. The problem that we have uh, special skills for and that there's something we can do about. Uh-huh. And right. everything else has to be left to the other 7 billion people on the planet, or perhaps the other 40 billion, um, you know, palm trees or ants. Or, like, there's other creatures, spirits, and energies on the planet that can take care of things. You, dear listeners, do not have to take care of everything. Right. Codependent to the audience. 
Like, right. Witchy codependency. I never thought about that, but that totally makes sense. You have to know your boundaries. Yeah. What is somebody else's business and what is yours? And you're going yeah. to screw it up. You're going to screw it up and then you're going to learn from that over time. But um, could you explain to us what a cozy mystery is versus a mystery? Okay. So cozy mystery, I, you know, now, you know how it is when you get involved in something and you think everybody knows what a cozy mystery is, but so many people are like, uh, so what does this mean? Do I have to like have a blanket on when I look at it? So cozy mystery is basically, it's a soft boiled mystery. It's a mystery where, okay, yeah, there's going to be a murder, but language is usually pretty clean. There's um, generally no sex on the page. It might be hinted at. The, the murders are there, but they're not, you know, gory. And um, it's not like you're not going to see kids dying and pets definitely are. Any animal that shows up in one of my books, you know, is going to be totally pampered and they might get lost for a few hours, but like that's going to be or they might have to wear a collar. But like that's the worst torture that animal is going to get. So they're just, well, they're books that you just know that they're going to be easy. They're going to be easy and soft and comforting to read. So far, I'm halfway through and there's one dead person and all we know is that there's a dead person. Right. We don't know but, anything else about them or how they died or who, maybe that they're female, but nothing else. They're just Right. And that's the whole thing is that you should, oh, so I'm sorry, so you should be revealing these things like step by step. Like the characters that you know now, hopefully there's going to be some twist and you're going to find that they're not what you expected in the end. That's yeah. my goal. Yes, I was surprised by Linda. So so um, then you go through you go through um, all the characters, but I mean, it's halfway through and they're now investigating the death. So the death is like there's a dead person. Now we're investigating. And mm. it's kind of that's kind of. Um, kind of really interesting and nice like I really love murder mysteries mm -hmm. I love real murder mysteries the you know mm -hmm. I like everybody the big podcast fad for oh yeah so many of them now there's even a show on Netflix somewhere Hulu that has Steve Martin's made a parody out of you know oh yeah podcast, murder podcast which is funny by the way <laughs> that, um, is, that it is I'm wondering, I'm wondering about that I'm wondering about how we are so interested in murder and why are we so in, I'm fascinated by murder uh, and I hear people say things like oh he's not capable of murder I'm just like why do you think we're so interested in murder I know well okay for writing a mystery novel I think murder just becomes a structure that gives you high stakes so you want to solve it because there's high stakes somebody was killed and then as one author I heard Tom Perry said a plot so a murder plot in this case is just the bucket you carry the story in so the really interesting parts of the story for me are the relationships and the characters and the stakes and the plot they just sort of keep the story moving along but I think murder is interesting because it's like it's something I would never do, something that I'm not thinking you would do, but maybe I'll be telling the podcast that comes after you murder a bunch of people something differently. You never would have ex expected it. But no, you wouldn't do that. But so and then it's so foreign. So it's like I think just trying to figure out, like, why did this happen? How did this happen? For me, it's not the act of the murder that is interesting. It's figuring out why, like, who would do that? Just so that's so against society and community to murder someone. It's just the why. What? what yeah, would I mean, I have a couple of thoughts about it. Like, one is we don't ever we we have been death has been relegated to the back room, so we don't get to see it or hear. Wow. It. 
or and then we're all now we're constantly shocked by death we're like death and it's like you're eating your chicken you can put yeah that in Right. Yeah. That used to be running around in the yard. Right. Everybody needs to understand death. I have to, I I kill something and then I eat it. And I'm, I have a direct relationship with death. One of the things that witches do do is celebrate um, their relationship to the other side, to death, to their ancestors. Uh, The Protestants kind of got rid of that. Um, They got rid of ghosts and deaths and ancestors when they came in Uh from the Catholics. And um, so there, there was actually big rules against it. So we have, that has been distanced. It's starting to come back with, the, I think with the witch boom and with the psychic boom, uh-huh. even, even the zombie shows, I think are talk, trying to remind us we all are gonna die. Uh-huh. And, and so I think mysteries, murder mysteries help us stay connected to the idea that we're gonna die. Uh-huh. And we have death in the world. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That totally makes sense to me. It's a way to sort of safely look at it. It's here in your book. It's in this other place. And justice is done, too. That's another beautiful part of the book. Justice is done. And for me, I I think about, you know, when I I hear about people talk about murder, I'm like, well, yeah, what we have to remember is that humans are predatory. And if we, (sighs) if we, another thing we've gotten out of relationship to is our own internal predatoriness. And every single one of us are, is predatory. And we, we, you get stimulated in a particular way, you're going to murder someone. Yeah, everybody, every single person on the planet is capable of it. Just because every single one of us is capable of predatory. And we learn ways to handle that predatory nature. And then we get shocked when someone has not learned that, you know, or has not been. I bet over generations too, you know, it's like it's bred into us. The ones who are predatory are sent out of the community or killed. The ones who are more overtly that way and the ones who can live more in community, you know, over centuries, that would build up more. It's true. We, we isolate people who have, who have not uh, been in an environment where they can learn to handle the predatory nature and we shove them out to the edges where we breed more predators. And um, it's culturally, it's very strange. It, in Ireland, in Brennan Law, there's certain things, which is an ancient law of Ireland. There, there are things done where you don't breed it. You accept people's predatory nature and you go, there's a different, it's not, it's not a punishment style, it's a rehabilitation style of, of law. It's a very ancient law called the Brennan Law. Uh-huh. I'm studying it right now a little bit. And um, so it's really, it's our ancestry, Angie. So it's like really like very fascinating to be in the polar opposite culture where it's punishment, then we breed it. And then we, and then we put it away from us. We go, I could never do that. And it's like, I'm perfectly capable of murder. I just don't do all the things that support it. I do uh-huh. all the things that don't support it. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Well, that is interesting. That gives me, gives me something to think about. You can ask pomegranate. You can ask pomegranate. She's a priestess. So, so tell me about this character, the main character of these witch books. Tell me about her. Well, she is a, well, I mean, she was born in a family of witches, which carry on through the women and her mother didn't want anything to do with this power, her grandmother. And so she, her mother 
convinced her grandmother to shut down. Her name is jo- Josephine. Her Josie and her two sisters were each named after French queens. So she's a Josephine, which they call her Josie. And her sister Marie Antoinette is Tony, and Eugenie is, is Jean. So, so, so Josie, because her father was a history professor at like a community college in Maryland. So Josie didn't really know that she was a witch. And so the spell dimmed everything about her, though. When it shut off her magic, it shut off a lot of things about her. And she just was not as involved in the world around her. But she still loved books. She loved books so much. When that spell is broken, all of a sudden she can see things, taste things, smell things that she never really could before. It's like her life sort of explodes. And she has this weird power that slowly starts to seep in that she's wondering if she's lost her mind. She doesn't know exactly what's going on. And so, but personality wise, really, I have to say, I think I could have. So there's sort of some different ideas. When you're an author, you can make your main character somebody who has a lot of character or somebody that the reader can easily you know, slide themselves into. And I think Josie is more that kind of person. She's, she has the things that she likes and not. And certainly as the books develop and as she really finds herself getting more and more interested in the world and more able to see more, she becomes a little more her own person. But I think she's somebody that I hope a reader can identify with pretty easily. And I can hear Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, you go ahead. Well, so I gave her red curly hair because I have red curly hair. And as do you, because all my other heroines, I've given every other hair. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to give her my hair because I know how to deal with it. I can talk about it, you know. So that's her other characteristic and her cat, Rodney, who who meets up with her at the library. Yes, her cat is, uh, it's interesting. Her cat is very bossy. Yeah. <laughs> You've never had a bossy cat? Oh, yes. Um, every familiar I've had, I've had one familiar, every familiar one, um, was a very bossy cat. She was very bossy. Because <laughs> when they're familiar, it's their job to boss you around and tell you what to do. Um, so Kevin's familiars mostly put, make him go to bed. They're like, go to bed now, go to bed now. You're not in bed. Why are you in bed? We don't have cats now, so I have to do it instead. But <laughs> well, I've been edging around this idea of a familiar. I didn't want to come right out and say, this black cat that showed up is her familiar. Because I thought, well, it's kind of cliche of the black cat, but I have a black cat. In fact, I'm surprised she's not walking around on the desk right now. And I just thought, you know, why not make it a black cat? But I have never said familiar. I've just sort of, you know, this cat's. She just can, she gets along, she, this cat, somehow she knows what this cat is thinking. And the cat have an idea of what's going on with her. But I've never said, you know, this cat is her familiar. It's like you just, because she's not using that sort of language. She doesn't know what she's doing. And she knows she's a witch. She doesn't know but, about it. Yeah, but and this that's cat. Yeah. That's the way it goes. It's like when I figured out I was a witch, I didn't know anything about it. And it was before the witch boom, way before the witch boom. And so I was like, uh, what do I do with this? I think I might be a witch. Okay, how do I do this? Uh, <laughs> you know, want to play a second game with my friends? And they're like, sure. I'm like, because I'm, you know, I was, it was made clear to me I was very psychic because I saw things that were about to happen and then they happened. And uh, then I've been talking to my spirit guides my whole life. So I understood it now because I was like, okay, what I can do with this power 
is I can use an ancient path to learn about it. I had the power. I uh -huh. didn't have the ancient path. Uh -huh. so I learned the ancient path. And that's sort of what your character does too. Yeah. Grandmother. Now, I will say my mother, who's not a witch, uh, was not a witch. I've learned things from her too. Uh huh. Which she used her psychic powers. I learned things from her, but I, but then I had to go and get actually educated, right? Well, there was, so there are a couple things in Bait and Witch that I put in because directly because of you, because I remember you saying just like little things. That's the other thing. When you're a writer, I think everything that goes in transforms itself and eventually comes out in fiction if it sticks at all. Neil Gaiman once said that his mind is like a compost heap and and stuff grows from it, maybe not exactly in the form it started in. And I, I feel like that's true. So there are a few things I remember from you. Like I remember you saying offhanded that you could be in the kitchen cooking with your sisters and you just knew what each other needed or was doing or to move out of the way. So Josie does that. She she reflects back on that with her sister. That's because of you. The other thing I remember, this has not gone into the book, but um, yet, but it could, is I remember sitting next to you at a brunch and this bagel fell off the tray. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll eat that one because I wouldn't be, you know, a good guest. I could eat the bagel that fell off the tray. It's not a big deal. And he said, oh, but it's um, raisin. You won't like it. And I thought, I never told you I don't like raisin bagels. <laughs> I never said that. And I just, you know, picked up the next day and passed along the train and say anything. <laughs> because basically I will eat just about everything. I mean, it's kind of a problem, but not raisin bagels. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that, but I believe you. No, why would you? But yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just can't. I'm just wearing my I'm in my studio for those of you who are looking visually. And by the way, there's a weird delay on Facebook today for the audio. People will be fine, but for the people looking at the visuals. Um, all of these paintings are in progress, they're not painted yet, are about moments of witchcraft. And they're about that kind of moment when you're uh, alone by yourself, maybe there's other people there and you're doing something. You're setting your intention and you're channeling. And um, it feels like she does that with books a lot where she goes, she does book, book, grow, book romancy. And maybe that's the wrong word. But oh yeah, bibliomancy. That's what it is, bibliomancy, which I think anybody who's psychic has accidentally done. That could be, she starts doing that in book two. My editor was like, put in more witchcraft. I want more witchcraft. Book three, she's as she's getting more hold over her powers, there's a lot more stuff that goes on. But bibliomancy shows up in book two. And I wanted to put in that the idea that some things aren't obvious. Like you could say you opened a book. Let's just choose a book and open it. We'll have a panic by Helen McCloy. Okay. Say you open it. This is, I don't know, if it's, for people who can see, it has a super great old cover. Okay, so I'm reading this. If So random sentence. If he had, he probably wouldn't be up here in the mountains, objected Yolanda. So maybe, so that's pretty literal. If he had, he probably wouldn't be up here in the mountains. But what if you were, you wanted some response to, you had a love question. Maybe it's not so obvious as that. Maybe it means that, you know, you have, I don't know, you have your eye, your, the mountain is a, like this big obstacle somehow. And maybe it's, you're thinking you need a big obstacle to love, but really it's not somebody who's up in the mountain. It's going to be easy or, you know, that maybe the answer isn't so obvious. So oh. I try to get 
that idea across in book two. Yeah, that's great. That's good because that's the thing. Like um, <clears throat> we call it book divination. I do it with radios. We've done it with videotapes when we used to have videotapes um, where you, you ask a question and then you fast forward through the videotape and then reverse it and then fast forward and they go, you have to pick a, a good movie. Moulin <laughs> Rouge works really well. And then you go, stop. And then whatever the first sentence is, is your answer. And people or, wonder, why do pomegranates tapes always get all frazzled up and end I, up shooting out of their cases? <laughs> I've wrecked video, video cassette players. I've wrecked them doing this. Um, also, you know, the, there's the search and scan on your car radio. You can do it that way. You're asking a question, you just hit scan and then go stop. And then whatever the, is on the radio is your answer. Oh. Limited it has can do stuff that's not as good as books. Books are better. Books are so much variety, but I think just like not being super, or maybe something could be super obvious too. Maybe it is really plain. It's just so like when you think about dreams, maybe it something can be super obvious. I remember once having a dream and it was um, a light came on, on a porch and there was something there. And then I realized it wasn't about porches. It wasn't about light. I think it was just the, the literal translation of shine a light on it. You know, it's like there's this weird, sometimes there's weird ways to take stuff that bibliomancy might be part of it. It might not be super literal or it might be super literal. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it really is. Especially if you ask a question first before you do it and then you find out. But I'll bet that mountain one was somewhat for someone who's listening right now. Ooh. All right. Well, okay. Let's take a little break. Okay. And then we'll come back with more of Angie. Five two zero two 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 ninety nine twenty two ninety nine twenty two. You can ask pomegranate. You can ask pomegranate. She's a priestess. Okay, Angie. So your books are available all kinds of places, right? Barnes and Noble. Uh, where else are they available? Well, so they, there are, I have some traditionally published series and I have some independently published series. So the Vintage Clothing Mysteries, and then I have two capers and the Booster Club caper books, which are about a retirement home of petty criminals. Those are independently published. So you can order them at bookstores. Powell's often has them on the shelves or, you know, if you you can download, you know, for your Kindle or your Nook or anything like that too. And it's also available on Audible. These witch books are available on Audible if people like to listen to books. Yeah. So the witch books, and then I wrote a prior series under a pen name, Clover Tate. Those those are out of print now, but they show up. But the witch books are in print. You might even find them at Fred Meyer, you know, Walmart, places like that. They've been showing for those of you who live on the West Coast, those of you who don't, there are no Fred Meyers. But drugstore, um, like like grocery store, superstore, super kind of a superstore kind of place. Um, I'm going to share your website, Angela. Okay. So people can see who are looking. So her website is AngelaMSanders.com. There you, there you will see a fabulous picture of her in a vintage clothing store uh, holding a mannequin and her it's beautiful hair. 
And see, there's some there's some shooting going on in the background. It's a big crime scene in progress. Oh, he's got a gun. Yeah, see that? And she's stealing jewels, that other mannequin. Oh my god, he's a very jaunty gunman, I must say. <laughs> he's a dapper. Um, let's, let's go to the witch mysteries. I'm just gonna switch over to the witch mysteries. Oh yeah, I need to update that. Look, seven year witch barely has anything. Yeah, least out now. I know. I've got to put in some more there. They're fun. Um, and I've got some more great reviews too. Seven Year Witch was is a star review of, with book page. Woo! Pretty great. Oh my gosh, that's one wonderful. Then here's the I'm gonna show to others. There's a vintage clothing mysteries. If you like vintage clothing and mysteries, oh my god. There's some funny, funny scenes in these books. Um so, I really think books should be funny. I think like I mean, if I had to have a motto to put on my family shield, which I don't because I was raised in a trailer in the woods, the motto would be life is a glorious freak show because that's what I believe. <laughs> Sent to die. Sentence and spell to die is one. Yeah, Secret uh, of the Blue Lily, the covers. That's the tagline you're seeing, Sent to Die. Oh, it is? So, Secret yeah. of the Blue Lily. Oh, head case. Uh, the Halston hit. Oh, oh, that's oh drag Halston. I mean, got drag queens. Oh, girl, we can't stop talking about Halston. Um, what's this one called? Slain and Scaparelli. Ah! <laughs> you've got a lot of them. Dior or Die. What a great name. And the Laval and Murders. Yeah. I think I'm in that one. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So then there's the Booster Club capers. Those are the ones that center around the retirement home for petty criminals. These are actually my favorite of the books I've written. They have the worst sales, but I crack myself up so much writing them. I mean, they would make great movies. I think they would. I'm casting them in my mind already. <laughs> the Booster Club and Cat in a Bag. So, yeah, there's lots of books to go and see and can people buy the books from here no there's links you can link but you can get linked to where you can buy the book kindle the book iBook. i don't know what you're going to do with these books lots of different things so that's available um angie will you uh is it possible to ask you to read a passage from Baton Witch or Seven Year Witch? You know what I would like to read because mostly because I want your feedback on it because it's coming up. I would like to read a passage from a book that won't be released for another year. It's oh. the third one in this Witch Librarian series. And I wanted to read the grandmother's letter, her letter that has her lesson in it. Okay. And then the, and love magic is the sort of theme for this. So let me put on my lunettes here. So I'll read this to you. I don't think it'll take longer than three or four minutes. Time. Everybody's, everybody wants a cozy mystery read to them right now. Okay, here's your cozy. Sit back, get cozy. And it's all written in the first person. So my fingers, oh, and Rodney is her cat because Rodney shows up in this. My fingers trembled as I slid a paper knife under the envelope slap. I slipped out the folded sheets of paper inside. At the top of the page in my grandmother's handwriting were two words, love spells. I read it again to make sure. Yes, it was about love magic. Come on, Rodney. I nudged him from the chest, relocked it, and pushed it back under the bed. This should be interesting. Rodney and I settled in the armchair by the window with the faraway soundtrack of Verdi and the wind through the cottonwoods along the Kirby River. 
I smoothed open the lesson and let my grandmother's voice read it to me. As always, the honeyed warmth of her words rippled through my heart. Dear Josie, I wonder how you felt when you saw the words love spells. Were you excited? Perhaps there's someone you'd like to enchant, or maybe you felt dread. As I write this letter, you're playing in the garden with Grimbley, the ginger tomcat who never fails to alert me when the mugwort is ripe for harvest and the morel mushrooms have come up in the woods behind the house. You're barely six years old and you have no inkling of the power you'll have, the magic the star-shaped mole on your shoulder promises. If you're reading this, you're a woman now. Whatever you felt as you unfolded these pages, you were right to think that love magic isn't to be taken lightly. Love holds immense power. It's a strong, healing, nurturing power teeming with its own magic. Think about it. Can't you feel the love someone has for you simply by entering a room? Combined with reason, love can heal nations and uplift the saddest and most hopeless among us. However, the desire for love holds an entirely different power from love itself. And when it's frustrated, it can lead to depression, destruction, and even murder. The desire for love can destroy what real love is all about. It can make a thwarted lover want to bend someone else's will so that she will desire him, no matter what the object of his desire wants for herself. A witch must be very careful when influencing the lives of others. Using magic to protect yourself or other people is one matter. Using magic to divert someone's destiny is quite another. When working with love magic, you must remember this. Love and the desire for love are not the same. As an aside, the ability to attract romantic attention, a quality we call glamour, is not the same as being lovable, although it can mimic love's effects in people who fall under its spell. People who aren't too wise, that is. You don't have to be a witch to possess glamour. It's a trick of charm and unspoken promise, and it disappoints as often as it thrills people swayed by it. That said, as a witch, you have the ability to bend love's potent power. Use it with discretion and great thought, and you can accomplish good. But I can't urge you too strongly to be very, very careful. In my grimoire, by the way, she hasn't opened the grimoire yet. She's, it, it won't let her. You'll find recipes for love potions I've tested. Remember Mrs. Blandstone, the pastor's wife? When Pastor Blandstone became so obsessed with the book of Deuteronomy that he'd hardly eat, let alone look at her, I prepared her a dose of see me. You'll recall they eventually had six children. When Jeremy Bush was on his deathbed and full of resentment over his meager life, I put a few drops of family bonds into his medicine and he died grateful and full of love for his children who truly did adore him, the old coot. However you use this lesson, Josie, you must certainly feel my love for you now. So that's the last the lesson in book three. Angie, I cannot believe how accurate that is about the about love spells and the nature of love spells and it how made, it made sense to me. I tried to do a little bit of online surfing around, but there was a lot of stuff about you know burning pink candles and things like that. Love spells are some of the most dangerous spells you can do because they're done out of that that undifferentiated desire that you talk about, which is love is unconditional. Actual love is unconditional, right? And you're differentiating between unconditional love, which is like, look, I want love for you. I want it to be with me. But if it's not going to be with me, I hope you get it. That's not, that's unconditional love. Uh -huh. Most people do it out of the love cells out of that desirous place. And then you get it locked into bad situations, controlling situations. And yeah. it's, it's something a young witch does. They go, I need you a love spell. And you're like, no, you're not. Please don't. 
And then you're like, I am. And you go, please do that away from me because when the disastrous results happen, I don't want to be here. It's a very, it's probably one of the most difficult spells you can do. But if I was going to write a passage on how to do it right, I would have written that. That is so good. Well, she does end up eventually, she almost, almost, she makes the potion, which was a whole different thing. I also had to invent how all that happened. And I will just give you one little hint. She, the cat gets into it. <laughs> well, the familiar always comes along and does a little, <laughs> does something that either, you know, because familiars can be quite trickstery, right? They can trick you. Oh, yeah. Them, right? The cat gets into it and there's a Pomeranian involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cats are interesting or familiars are interesting because they can they communicate through pictures to your brain and they can't understand words as much. They understand a few words, but they can't they can understand a picture really well and symbols really well. So if you think of a symbol to to a familiar, they'll get you. They'll understand. So like if you don't want them to do something, you can imagine a big red X. Oh, through it, like get off the counter or yeah. yeah. Now they'll remember that that moment. Maybe tomorrow they won't remember there was a big X. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want them to do something, you like what they're doing, you give them a big green check mark and they go, okay, I get it. Sure, I get it. Thanks a lot for letting me know. Or if you're leaving town, show them where you're going and then uh -huh. show them, like imagine days going by, moons and suns rising and setting. And then show show yourself returning, and that calms them oh. down quite a bit. Oh, I have to try that. Yeah, they may still be yeah. mad, but they they go, okay, you're coming back. It's going to be this long. I just want to know what's happening. You know, they just. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was a really good uh, spell. I wonder if you're if when you write, do you ever feel like you're channeling, or what's it like to be an author, or? You know, I always, so I'm, I try, I outline my books. I plan the plot, not in a ton of detail, but I have an idea of what's going to happen. But then I might know, I might sit down and go, okay, I'm going to write the scene. And the scene, Josie's going to go to the library and she's going to discover a letter in a book. Say, I just made that up. Mm -hmm. And so, I'll, and I know it's a summer morning. And so I'll start writing the scene. And then there's all kinds of stuff that I never thought about that starts happening. You know, like, oh, well, this person comes into the library and, oh, she's, you know, there's coffee's upsetting her stomach, which leads to a particular something else. And like all these things start happening. I think I know what I'm doing. I think I'm just filling out the scene to get to the next scene. But there's a whole movie that needs to happen. It's pretty wild. In a way, a lot of authors, and it seems like you, are in touch with somebody who's telling you really accurate magical information. Like somebody, well, I feel like somebody's gardening this book because you don't, you don't talk to me about every single thing. You talk to me occasionally about a little bit of a little bit of something you get stuck on. But you're this is I'm not have anything to do with this. You're doing this all without uh, direct knowledge. Somebody's I think somebody's talking to you. I would love it. I think that would be cool. It would be great to have a name I can create in my office. I could put together a little sort of shrine with a. You know, here is here's this to you. Thank you. You can just relax here while I write. Feed me ideas. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Somebody's somebody is. I think somebody is doing that for you, and that's great. You probably could just write a little passage about her and find out. Um, 
there's anybody I would think it could be my grandmother because my grandmother, first of all, loved writing or yeah. reading. She loved reading. I mean, she read, I mean, basically she read every Barbara Cartland that was ever out there, which is a lot of books. And she was obsessed with murder. She wrote, she would sit in the RV with my grandpa and like rotate that little satellite. So she could continuously watch murder. She wrote through the hours. Yeah. I was wondering if uh, it was your grandma. I was thinking about her and then I was thinking about, is she the one, is she influenced one of the characters in the book? Um, well, whenever my grandmother, I loved her so much that if I think about a beloved grandmother, then I have to, some part of my grandmother goes there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was her. I was thinking that before you said it, I was thinking it. So okay, it might, it might be her. I would love that. I think she would enjoy it too. Yeah. Well, she knows a lot now because she's on the other side, right? Yeah. She was such a Catholic. She would, but you know, she always, she also had her own brand of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. She kind of made her own religion. Like, you know, divorce was okay. The Pope might not agree with her, but she said, you know, God just wants you to be happy. And if you are happier out of the relationship, then that's what God wants. So, you know, she was a devout Catholic. She did her rosaries constantly, but she had her own take. You can ask pomegranate. You can ask pomegranate. She's a priestess. Okay, so what, how did you become an author? What inspired it? How do you keep going? What's it like to be an author? Can I just ask that question? Yeah, you know, I, it's just like anything in life, you know, you do the next thing and the next thing and you don't think every once in a while I'll meet somebody and they'll say, oh my God, you have books that are published. And I just think, it's really not that big a deal, but I know, you know, 15 years ago, if I had met somebody who had books published, I probably would have thought it was kind of interesting and cool, but you know, when you do it, you just don't think anything about it. So every once in a while, I get emails from readers and I respond to them for the most part. And sometimes I'll write back and say, I can't believe an author has written to me because it's not that big a deal so you just sort of do the next thing and the next thing but I guess I would have thought like oh if you're an author first of all you have this office it's got like a chaise lounge in it and um you get to go to readings they fly you to New York you're making a decent you know you get these advances which allow you to live no I am so scraping by I am like I have got so many side gigs here to like unfortunately I can live well for cheap so um, money is definitely not why I write. I think I just, I love stories and everything becomes a story. It's just a way of being in the world. And like I said, life is a glorious freak show. There's so much, you know, there's just so much that is so fascinating that is going on. I can't help but see the stories, you know, and people say, oh, you, you know, you've had this fascinating life. Like, no, I haven't. Everybody has a fascinating life. Everybody has. I learned that when I was writing profiles and they would send me out and say, go interview this potato farmer. And I didn't know what the story was going to be, but I knew there was going to be a story and there always was. It's just that some people see the story and some people don't. And so for me, I always saw the story. I was at one point for 11 years of my life, a congressional investigator. And that was fascinating. I liked the mental problems. I lived in DC. I did some of it out here too. I traveled around the world. I like the problems of policy and figuring out what was going on. But when I went into somebody's office, 
I was fascinated by their office, by the pictures of their family on their desk, by wondering what the person was like, by the way that they wore their shirt tucked in a particular way. Those people were stories to me. And that was so much more interesting than whatever I was gathering information on. So I just think I always kind of was a storyteller. And my grandma, in fact, told me, I was like, about six years old, well, you're going to write books, right? I didn't think I would because I grew up super poor in the woods. So I needed to do something that was going to make money. So then I got a bachelor's degree in economics. Economics? Now I look back, it's like, you're crazy. And then a master's in public administration. Why? And then I found out I could be a government person. I could have this job. And then I rejected it. I got on the grease pole to poverty and happiness. I'm happier than I've ever been. And mm-hmm. finally became more myself. So that's kind of my story. Oops, I feel a cat down by my hand. The cat comes to say a few things. Yeah. Wow, I, yeah, I didn't, how, how do I not know any of this stuff about you? I didn't know you were a congressional investigator or that your degree yeah. was in economics. What's wrong with me? I am well, you know, not right. much of an investigator. It's kind of like it's part of my past, but it's well, because it's part of my past, it's part of who I am, but it's not. It's like I had to do this thing so that I could return to really the person I am. And the person I am doesn't want to wear suits and testify in front of Congress and sit in a cubicle. The person that I am wants to um, be an excellent thrifter (laughs) and cook delicious meals and write stories about witch librarians and other stuff. Yeah, I mean, one of the primary characteristics that you possess that I notice about you is you are extremely observant and then when you report when you report that observation it's very kind so you're observing the loveliness around you and the Mm -hmm. oddities around you and the different qualities around you and you aren't you aren't giving you don't observe and then go and then this, and then this terrible thing, and then that terrible, and then I thought this about, you know, sometimes I think we're trained as females to be very observant, and then mm-hmm. to attack and criticize other people, and I've mm-hmm. never heard you, I've, and I've heard you through some difficult times, I've never heard you do that, I've heard you complain about people who are not being good, but mostly you're just very kind, and your observations are actually pretty uplifting, that is, that's nice. I feel like I'm an optimist, but I certainly, um, I get really irritated with people though too. And I, I feel, I don't think of myself as that kind. I don't think I'm mean, but no, thank you're you. not, you're not mean or, or cruel. And, and, uh, your book, your books are, you know, I'm really happy to report, report your books are like you. They're, they're uplifting, interesting, um, fascinating. And so far halfway through, um, good witchcraft. Well, well, good. I mean, if I can make, you know, you think about like, what is your purpose in life or what gift do you have? And I feel like if I have a gift, it is that I can see, you know, especially when my mind is clear and I'm feeling good. Yes. I can, I feel like I can see beauty in everything. Everywhere. There is a story. There's something fascinating or funny or interesting everywhere. I feel like, you know, if you forced me to live in a little shack in the backwoods of Milwaukee or something, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I'm thinking I would see, you know, that I could do, I could do it and be happy. And so if I can help people see that there is beauty everywhere in their life and that 
they don't have to live this, you know, this boring humdrum, what they think of this life of like, I've got to make the money. They call it work for a reason, you know, that sort of thing. If I can help people see that there is a lot of beauty and wonder in life and that if they can adopt some of that perspective, then I feel like I will have accomplished my mission. And then if I can give them some entertainment, help them pass a few hours too, then I'm, ha- I'm happy to do that. I think that's what I have to give. I'm not a surgeon. You know, I'm not a whatever, a fabulous harpist or something. It's like I'm a storyteller. Well, that's part of how you how you can know what's your business is know you can know what's your business because you are it brings you a feeling of peace or not happiness but joy. It brings you a piece of joy because happiness is a little like yay, I'm happy, which is kind of a temporary position. Whereas joy is a base note and that peace or joy or wellness, then mm-hmm. you know it's your, if it brings that to you, then you know it's your business because mm-hmm. writing is not easy and yet you keep doing it. You keep going mm-hmm. back in and writing. Is there any tricks you have about for anybody who wants to get going as, an, as a writer or get themselves to write? Um, any tips for that? Well, I feel like everybody's brain is different. Everybody's work styles are different. I've done some writing coaching and I'm going to be starting to offer some group coaching coming up too, because I feel like, well, everybody, people sometimes just need help getting on being part of the writing life, but everybody's brain is different for me. What works, and I think for what a lot of people, what works for them is just to do, make a habit out of it. And if you have that feeling, that little bit of a high, just like you're talking about when you're writing, you might not, you might not want to sit down and start, but if you are five minutes into it, you'll feel that high and it will keep you going through the writing session. And then it's just a matter of getting in the habit of starting because it's the starting part that's like, you know, and then if you put it off to later, oh, right after dinner, although I do have, I have one friend who writes all night and she writes amazing novels and Harper Collins is coming out with her second one. She's doing super well. And she just, she writes all night. She gets up at about three in the afternoon and gets on with her day, eats one meal a day. I don't know how she does that, but I think just making a habit of it. And for me, that means doing it every day. And so, and also sometimes writing is not sitting at your computer. Sometimes you're writing when, if you, you might be the sort of person who needs to think through your story to make it into a sort of movie in your head before you sit down. And that might mean you're writing when you're working in the garden, when you're vacuuming, when you're mending, you know, when you're just walking through the neighborhood, it's kind of, it's a, it's an important, maybe essential to you part of the writing process. And then you sit down and you put your fingers on the keyboard or your hand to a pen if that's what helps you. That's good. That's good advice. I mean, when I, one of the best advice I got for being an artist was from R.V. Smith. And he's an amazing painter and you and I both know him. And he said to me, uh, just go sit in your studio. It doesn't matter if you do anything. Just every day, go sit in your studio. Mm -hmm. And that's why my studio is in my house. Because I'm like, I can just go down to my studio and I'm like, yeah, it doesn't matter what happens. Mm-hmm. I'm, I am present with the work. So mm-hmm. just go sit where you will write. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to hear you're going to be coaching. Uh, let me take a little break and then we'll come back and hear more about that and where people can get in touch with you if they want to learn to write. And I know you have a great deal of joy in writing. Learn to write it with joy. This is what I think. Yes. 
Yes. All right, let's take a little break and we'll come back and hear about that, Nancy. 520-2-99-22-99-22. You can ask pomegranate. You can ask pomegranate. She's a priestess. Okay, now, so... I'm excited because I want people to know about this. You're, I didn't know this, you're going to, or you are coaching people and you're going to offer some coaching online for people around the world to tune into if they want. I want to offer, so I do one-on-one coaching, but it's expensive. And, you know, if somebody's like me, they can't, you you know, you, you might want some help getting your writing practice going, dealing with particular issues in your work, but you can't afford to pay somebody like 75 bucks an hour. So I decided I would start doing group coaching for eight students maximum by Zoom, an hour and a half at a shot. I haven't figured out the pricing, but it's going to be quite a bit less, maybe $30 for an hour and a half. And then meet every other week with assignments in between. And then really make sure everybody has time to look at their work. And then that every issue becomes a learning opportunity for the rest of the people in the group. For instance, if somebody comes to me and they have a scene that they want to talk about in the next class, and maybe I read the scene and decide that um, it's a great scene, but there are some pacing issues, then I would do some research on pacing with some resources and then talk about the particular scene, its strengths. I think people should always know what their strengths are. You know, it's so easy to point out the not strengths, but I think we should always be emphasizing our strengths. And then talk about pacing so it's something that everybody in the group can learn from then so I'm going to do sort of a soft launch in a couple of weeks and then in January really put a page on my website and um, go into it in more depth but I love teaching I love talking I teach at Clark College already I love talking um, about writing and I think it'll be fun I mean, my God, it's going to be amazing. I mean, also, I'm going to talk you up on that price because that's way too low. Everybody, <laughs> but if plan there's on paying, plan on paying more, everybody, I charge a hundred dollars for an hour or for three hours, and that's all uh-huh. you get. So, like, I think um, maybe you're going to increase that price. If you, you get that price, everybody, you're really super lucky. Just be <laughs> really, really happy you did because look <laughs> how much work this is going to be for her. So, but it's great. And Clark College is in Portland, Oregon. So if you're in Portland, you might want to look up, uh, what's your class called, Angela? So it's the one I'm teaching right now. Actually, the class starts tonight. It's through Clark College on Zoom. So I have have students across the nation. This one is called How Done It, How Authors Craft Their Mysteries. And in each class, I interview a different, pretty well-known mystery author. And it's not recorded, so we ask everything about money, about rejection, about what to do when you just can't write. I'm really planning. And there are people I all know to some extent personally. So I feel like I can really get in there and get the questions. So that's what we're doing in that Okay, so you can look that up. um, But maybe we'll have a new one coming up. This this isn't going to come out for a couple months. Yeah. But um, and otherwise, go to AngelaMSanders.com and you'll find her uh, direct where she gets all the money directly, uh, which is great. Let's support her to make more bright more books. And you can also look into the book Bait and Witch, 
seven year witch, all of the other ones. And then what's the, the final one that you're ready now? The witch and famous is coming out in a year. And then I'm working on another one now, but I, I was working on for vintage clothing mystery, but it, I just had this idea about writing about a mother and her daughter, both recent widows for the daughter has to go back to her family home because her, it turns out her husband has mortgaged her house a bunch of times. There's all these secrets. So I'm calling it right now, the widows Hollenbeck. And I don't know, it just is sticking in my mind. It could be interesting when this, this mother and daughter, both recent widows get together and have to untangle the daughter's life. But wow. if anybody wants to get in touch with me directly too, because I'm not going to put the coaching thing on my website probably for a little while, mostly because just dealing with the website is a whole issue, but you can get in touch with me at Angela at Angela M M as in Marie Sanders.com. So Angela at Angela M Sanders.com. Yeah. And feel free to write. Right. Cause you'll write back. And, and here's, a, <laughs> here's the cover of the book for those of you watching and there'll be links to her website and um, email on my website. I know most of you have never gone to my website, but if you want to go to my website, it's askpomegranate.com and then you'll get more information about Angela directly. And um, yeah, you can do what you want with that. Okay, my dears. Uh, so what a fascinating interview. Thank you for coming on Ask Pomegranate. The interview Thank you. Apparently Thank I'm you for having me. This was so fun. It was fun to have you. You're so fascinating. You're fascinated. Hang on, I gotta close this. <laughs> you're fascinating and you're fascinating and fascinated, which is really a great combination. <laughs> Thanks, honey. Thank you. Thank you.